good morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those and turn right to where that video pointed you, Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to continue on uh, the conversation we started last week. Last week, if you missed last week, it's probably good because uh, last week was all bad news, okay? Um, and we, to understand the good news, we didn't know what the bad news was. And so if you're here last week, we're all bummed out together, okay? And today is going to be the good news. And so uh, I'm going to invite Kristen Allman up to come read today's passage with you. Um, and as, as she comes, I should probably let you know, she's actually my cousin. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, we're related. I'm her favorite cousin. If you asked if she's my favorite cousin, I'd say, we've got a lot of cousins, you know. Um, and so, um, hey, yeah. Uh, so if you would, just stand with her, uh, with my 25th favorite cousin, and uh, she reads Ephesians chapter 2 for you today. Good morning. Um, in your blue Bibles in front of you, it's going to be page 814. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those are disobedient. All of us are alive, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following in its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by the grace you were saved, and God raised us up from Christ, up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in this kingdom to us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Thank you, Kristen. If you would join me in a word of prayer. God, this is your word. Uh, these are your people. Uh, this is your morning. It's your day. God, everything is yours. And so we want to recognize that at the start. And we pray that as we uh, continue on this hour now, as we, as we dig into Ephesians chapter 2, Lord, that you would be the one who speaks, that you would be the one who teaches and moves, God, Remove all distractions, including myself, out of this room, and may you speak clearly. And we ask that you do this to the glory of your name and the glory of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Have you ever been in a situation where you were certain, or at least it wasn't outside the realm of possibility, that you were going to die and someone else saved your life? I actually have one story like that. It, is, that's, it makes it sound more dramatic than it probably was, but, but it was dramatic to me. And so um, I can tell you that there, there's, an, there's an individual that is either still on this planet or was at some time that saved my life, and I don't even know his name. Uh, how this happened was we were in uh, Mexico, Cozumel, Mexico, with Corinne's family. Uh, on, we were vacation with their family, and, and Corinne has two brothers. Uh, her oldest brother has a scuba diving license, and so... He was like, what's the point in being in the Gulf of Mexico without going scuba diving? Um, he talked uh, his, his younger brother, Jake, to go with him, and I didn't want to be left out and stuck on the beach, but um, so I went over there and asked how much it was to go scuba diving, and they said $95, and I said, no, thank you. All right, that was an easy decision. And then the, 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 guy, the guy looked at me and in broken English said, snorkel, $5. And I said, "See, si, senor, right? Um, $5, we can do that, okay? And so we go out, we get on the boat, and we go out, and he's um, giving Jake and Kyle these instructions about how you, you go down slow, you don't want pressure to build and die and all that stuff, you know, the scuba diving stuff. 
And he's ignoring me completely, right? And so we get out there, and, and they're, they're doing that thing where you fall backwards in the water. And he throws a couple flippers and, and snorkeling gear, like mask and a hose to me. And he says, as he's falling in, fall the bubbles. And then he just falls in. And I'm like, okay. And so I look at the driver, and the driver of the boat speaks zero English at all. And he just keeps saying something to me in Spanish. But the way he's gesturing makes me think, I need to jump in right now. So I throw the stuff on real quick. I jump in, and without a worry in the world, right? I've, I've been snorkeling before. I'm a decent swimmer. You put those, those flippers on your feet, any decent swimmer becomes a great swimmer, right? Because you're like a duck now. And so I'm like, all I need to do is find them and follow the bubbles. So it was really easy because the water is incredibly clear. Um, I can see all the way to the bottom, and two thoughts hit me right away. This is really, really deep. Like, we were out here 50, 100 feet deep. I can't tell how far, but it's really deep. And this is going to be really boring snorkeling because there's nothing. It's just water everywhere, you know? And I'm like, well, they said at the end we're going to get to Coral Reef, so this, this will be fine. This is what I get for five bucks. And so I'm watching them go down, and then they start swimming, and so I follow them, and eventually they get deep enough I can't see them anymore. Well, what can I see? I can see the bubbles. And I remember, that's what the guy said, follow the bubbles, right? Then the bubbles disappeared. And I'm like, okay, now I don't know where I'm supposed to swim. I don't know where the coral reef is. And even if I find the driver in the boat, he can't speak English. So this is getting a little sketchy, but I'm like, the bubbles were going that way, so keep going that way. And I keep trying to go, and I eventually, to the point where I'm like, I need to just kind of sit up here, wave down the boat, and get out of this water because I don't know where to go. And I pop up, and what do I see? no boat. And so now I'm out here in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico at 100 feet water. I'm pretty tired because I've been swimming pretty hard to try to stay up with the bubbles that have since disappeared. And I'm like, I don't know what to do here. And I can see in the distance the shore. And I'm like, you know what? I got the duck feet. Let's just go to the shore. And and no matter where I end up, I'll walk back to the beach we're at and, and it'll be fine. It'll be a fun story. So I start swimming. And my theory was uh, until a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to Paul Acey about this, my theory was that uh, there was a current against me. But, but when I talked to him, he says, in open water swimming, if you don't have targets to go at, most likely what you're doing is just going in circles. Uh, and so I swam as hard as I could swim for 10 or 15 minutes. I looked up, and the shore was farther away than when I started. And that's when panic set in, right? And I'm like, oh, boy. Okay, and so you, you're telling yourself, if you panic, then you will drown. Okay, so don't panic. And I remember thinking... The Jonah story where he was swallowed by a fish always kind of grossed me out, but right now it sounds pretty good, right? And I start just praying, all right, Lord, is, I mean, is this it? Like, this is real. I mean, we went on a vacation to Cozumel, Mexico, and this is how it ends. I mean, they're going to get back in the boat. Corinne's going to be like, where's my husband? Like, I don't know. He never showed up. And then that's the end of the story. I'm dead somewhere in the bottom of the sea. And, um, and it, I mean, I'm joking about it now, but it was like, I was terrified, and so I do the thing where I'm like, well, what, what can I have to my advantage? Well, my flabby gut, right? So lay on your back, use your fat to float a little bit, right? And you can restore some energy here. And, and, and so I, I did that for what seemed like several minutes. Again, and when you're panicking, it could have been 30 seconds. It could have been 10 minutes. I don't know. But the problem with that strategy is the wind was blowing the waves to the point where salt water just kept splashing in my face and down my mouth. And if you know me, I've got a really easy gag reflex. So I'm just gagging over and over again in the Gulf of Mexico. And this is just not going well. And so I decide, all right, this is it. No matter what, we're given one last push to swim to the shore. And I either die or I don't. 
And so I just go as hard as I can go. And, and every time I look up, it doesn't feel like I'm getting closer. But I'm like, just stop looking up and just keep swimming. And eventually, one time, I, I took a break to catch my breath. And I saw off in the distance the boat. And he was heading to what I think would have been where we were supposed to meet. He didn't notice me at all. And so I took off the flipper and I started waving as, as, like, as big as I could. And thank God he saw me and turned around and picked me up. And when I got into the boat, again, this guy speaks no English. He kept saying something to me. I had no idea what he was saying. I'm laying on the floor of the boat, just exhausted, panting. I just keep saying, gracias, 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 you know. Because I, I don't think the guy to this day knows that he's saying, I, don't, I think he's probably like, what's that idiot doing? Let's go pick him up, you know. And, and, you know, I don't know his name. I've never had a conversation with him. That guy saved my life. He really did. And I love, I love telling that story because, number one, it's a good story, Right. And then number two, even as I tell it to this day, I, I, I feel sort of the nerves build up because I remember that panicked feeling. I remember thinking, this, this is it, right? And, and, I, and I mentioned that to tell you this. Sometimes uh, what else I do when it comes to stories is I listen to other people's stories. And what I'm mainly talking about here is, is their testimonies. Their stories of how Jesus Christ um, inserted himself in their life and saved them. And my reaction is one like this. Oh, wow, that was a really good story. My, my story is not that exciting or dramatic at all, right? Because I grew, I did the traditional grow up in a Christian two-parent home, and yes, I've been a moron my entire life, but I haven't done anything that dramatic. And so, you know, I, I feel like this almost testimony envy, if you will. And, and people who are laughing, they, they felt the same, but you know what else? I found that even those with dramatic stories can feel a similar temptation after a while. Because what happens is the longer that we're Christians, the longer that we follow Jesus, passages like Ephesians 2 can begin to mean less to us. The longer that we're we're following Jesus, we've heard the line, Jesus Christ died for my sins so often that it doesn't hit us like it should. I mean, think about it. What that line is saying is that the Son of God suffered and died in your place. And yet we've heard it so often, we're like, yep, he did. And we move on, Right? Our familiarity with the gospel begins to rob it of its power. So let me ask you have, you, have you ever felt like your testimony was a little bit boring? Has the power of the gospel ever started to slowly wane in your life? Is it possible that you can hear something so many times that the marvel of it starts to disappear? I'm going I'm to be as honest with you as I can this morning at the risk of you thinking less of me, Okay. Because uh, I want to tell you, my, my journey with passages like Ephesians 2 in ministry. So I've been in ministry, I don't know, like 15 years now. And, and at, early on in my ministry, I, I really struggled to preach what you would call gospel-only messages, right? And because the struggle was, I, I felt, I, and I felt what it was is I put it on myself. I felt uh, this pressure to try and find a way to make it sound new or exciting, Right? And, and over time, the Lord really convicted me of that. And he was like, Brett, the gospel alone is more than enough. There's, there's no reason you have to dress it up or come up with a really awesome story to start or feel any, but like the gospel alone is powerful enough. And so I, I grew from that. And then, then my next sort of phase of ministry was I had this, this attitude. Well, okay, if I'm going to give a gospel-only message, it'd be a huge bummer if there's only Christians there to hear it. Right? And, and, and that, that's okay. Like, we want non-Christians to hear the gospel, don't we? We want people to hear the hope they have in Jesus. But then what happened with that is God convicted me that every Christian needs to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. 
And so then the sort of the third iteration of this was like, I was so excited that, that God had freed me from that struggle that I wanted to bring everyone else on that journey. And so now the new pressure I'm putting on myself was to convince you how awesome the gospel was. And God had to come in a third time and be like, Brett, the, God, the gospel doesn't need you to sell it at all. It's the power of salvation to any who believe. And so I tell you that to tell you this this morning. I, I'm standing before you an unfinished project, product. Right? God, God's not done with me yet, but what, what I'm bringing to you this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, and I feel immense freedom today. And the freedom that I feel is, is no sort of pressure to, to package this in any cute way for you, because what I have to share with you today is utterly amazing. It is the most powerful, most mind-blowing, most wonderful truth that exists, and I don't need to sell it, and I don't need to package it, and I don't need to worry about what it's, how it's received. What's been asked of me is to be faithful to it and unashamed of it, and what happens from there is between you and the Lord. But what I know is this, what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you have an amazing story because you have an amazing God. And yet if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, then, then there's an amazing God in pursuit of you. And what he wants to accomplish in your life is so far beyond what you have thought possible to, to this point. And he wants to do it because he loves you. And so if this morning, if you will respond to him in faith and belief, you too can leave this place today with an amazing story because you will have an amazing God. And one of the ways that we miss out on the good news of Jesus, we miss out on just how extravagant his love is, is because we miss out or misunderstand the bad news. All right? And so I, I need to, at the start, uh, I know some of you are probably ready to move on from, but I need to recap last week a little bit. We're going to zoom in on verses 4 through 9 today, but to, to get how powerful verses 4 through 9 are, we need to get verses 1 through 3. And so just a real quick recap of what we gleaned from those verses last week is that who we are apart from Jesus Christ, who we are apart from his love and his grace is incredibly bleak and hopeless. The first thing Ephesians 2 tells us is that we are spiritually dead. That's what verse 1 says. Which means that spiritually we have no life at all. We have no capacity for God. We are incapable of seeking after him and we have no chance of earning our own salvation. The second thing we are apart from Jesus Christ is that we are under just some really horrible authorities and influences. We are under the authority of Satan, who wants to ruin us and anything God created. We are under the authority of the world, which is a collective group thing that is not for our good, and, we are God, and that our God is our sinful nature. And the result of all that, according to verse 3, is that by our very nature, you and I stand deserving of God's wrath. We've earned the punishment, anger, and wrath and condemnation of God. This is why John chapter 3 tells us this. It says that whoever believes in him, that's Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But listen to this. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, when you talk about heaven in the world today, right? When you talk about who gets in heaven and who doesn't, what is always sort of the focus? What's always brought up? Well, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, Right? And, and so the focus is always like, I'm just trying to be a good person, as if there's some sort of divine scale where if I can put enough in my good and it's going to outweigh the bad and then Peter will let me through the pearly gates and all will be good. But you know what, you know what doesn't even engage in that debate? debate? The Bible. It doesn't even talk about whether or not you're a good person because it's irrelevant. Do you know why? Because there's not enough good you could ever do to make a difference. How much good can a dead person do to become alive? They can't. 
And so apart from Jesus, God's word tells us that we are dead spiritually. We're dead. We cannot pursue God without him drawing us in. We're left to horrible influences. Our God is our sinful nature, our flesh. And we are deserving of wrath and condemned already. Listen to me, apart from Jesus Christ, it's no stretch at all for me to tell you this morning. Apart from Jesus, you have zero hope. You have no hope. Because there's not enough good deeds that you could ever do. There's not enough prayers that you could pray. There's not enough kind acts or gestures or things that you can do to get into a right standing with God. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost, you are dead, you are condemned, and you are bound for hell, and you are powerless to stop it. The bad news is really, really, really bad. But you know what I love this morning? Chapter 2 doesn't stop in verse 3. It goes on to verse 4. And in verse 4, we see a phrase that starts. Now, if you've got the NIV like I do, verse 4 in the NIV says, but because of his great love, comma, God. Now, that's not how that was written in Greek, I want you to know. And it's, it's not a bad translation. It means the exact same thing. But the original phrasing I like better, what Paul wrote is to this church, what he wrote is, you were dead in your sins. You were under the influence of the devil, the world, and slaves to your flesh. You were deserving of the wrath and condemnation of God. And then he writes these two words, but God. But God, who has such great love for us, but God who is so rich in mercy, but God who did not sit idly by and leave us in that state, but God who unloaded his grace on us and decided to rescue us, but God who inserted himself into our story and took on our form and then took our place, but God who saved us in ways we would have never dreamed of, but God who can bring life where there is death, grace where there is wrath, and hope where there is hopelessness, but God did what only he could have done. I'm telling you all, those are the two best words in the Bible, but God. You were dead, you were hopeless, you were bound for hell, but God took up your cause, took up your fight, paid our penalty, and saved us with a great and tremendous salvation. And so I want us this morning to see the things that Paul lifts up here in chapter 2, because in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a nice breakdown of salvation for us, of how every aspect of the Trinity is involved in saving us. But what chapter 2 is about is, is Paul is unloading for us this, this grace that we've been shown and, and the way that it manifests in our life. And so I want us to see this morning how God set about to save us. And what we're going to find in these verses is God's motivation for our salvation his means for our salvation, and his purpose in saving us. The first thing that we see is the motivation, which we find in verse 4, which simply says this, but because of his great love for us, God, you see the motivation, God's motivation for saving us was love. John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so what? For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. First John 4 picks up on this and tells us that this is love. Not that we love God, that's important. Not that we loved him, but that he what? He loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans chapter 5 says this, that God demonstrates his what? His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again and again and again throughout God's word, we are told the same message, that God has sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to to suffer and be beaten and whipped and pierced and nailed to a cross and hung from the cross to die, to pay the price that we would owe an eternal, holy, awesome God for the sins we've committed. And the motivation for all of it was his extravagant, reckless, unbending, never-failing, never-ending love for us. 
And by the way, I need you to know this because there, there, there is, I hate debates in Christian circles, but there is a debate in Christian circles about using that word reckless for God's love. And we're about to sing that song here in a little bit. And with the word reckless, when we use that around here, what we're saying is that it's not that God didn't know what he was doing. It's that he gave no regard to his own well-being to save us. We can all agree with that, right? He gave no regard to his own well-being when he suffered and died on the cross in our place. No one ever has, no one ever will, no one ever could love you the way that God has loved you. And we have done absolutely nothing to earn it. Did you catch that from those verses? It did not say that he waited until we cleaned up our lives. It did not say that God stood back and waited until you started praying. and was like, okay, now I'm going to love that person. He didn't wait until you got your life in order. He didn't wait until you started loving him. No, why we did not love him, why we were sinners, why we were spiritually dead in our transgressions, why we were deserving of his wrath and condemnation, God looked on us with nothing but love. And he said, I'm going to suffer for them. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to take their place. I'm going to do so to save them. Which is why you're going to find one chapter over in Ephesians 3. If you've got your Bibles open, look over there to chapter 3. This prayer from Paul in Ephesians 3, starting the second half of verse 17. Paul says this to this church. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, and listen to this word, to grasp to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. The love of God is so immense, right, that Paul feels the need to pray for this church that the Holy Spirit would come on them and help them even begin to grasp how big it is. That's how much God loves you. This was his motivation for saving you. God's means for our salvation, we also find in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 again says of chapter 2, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. And then the end of verse 5 says, it is by grace that you've been saved. Now God is love. He's not just a loving God. He's the embodiment of love. And so when a God of love relates to human beings, relates to sinners like us who are deserving of his wrath, that love has to take on a certain form. And what it takes on is the form of mercy and grace. Do you know we actually aren't saved by God's love? There's a lot of people who God loves that, that, that won't be saved by Jesus Christ, right? Because they have not believed in him. The, it's God's motivation for saving us, but love alone does not change our state. The mercy and grace of God is what saves us. And so understanding both will, will give you a picture of, of all that God has done in your salvation. And so I'm going to give you uh, sort of... Uh, Bible School 101, the, the sort of the lowest key uh, de- definitions of mercy and grace that I can give you this morning. And mercy is simply this. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so if you leave today and you realize the sermon went too long, as they probably often do, and you're going to try to beat all the Wesleyans to the Mexican restaurant, and so you take off from here and you go 55 miles per hour into 30 and you get pulled over, you deserve a ticket, don't you? Right? Because you're going 25 miles per hour over, and if the cop decides, you know what? Mexican food's really good, I understand. You go on with your day. He's just showing you mercy because you didn't get what you deserved. Well, the Bible's clear. Romans chapter 3 says the wages of our sin, the cost of our sin, is our death. And it's an eternal death. Ephesians chapter 2 that we just read uh, today and last week is that that we stand deserving of God's wrath. John chapter 3 tells us that we are condemned already. And in our salvation, by Jesus dying on the cross, what he did was he paid our wages. He paid our costs. He absorbed the wrath of God that I'm deserving of. He took on the condemnation that is waiting for me. And so if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, none of that is coming for you anymore. None of it. 
Which is why Jesus said this at the very end at the cross. In John chapter 19, this is the last moment on the cross. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said what? He said, it is finished. That, you get that word right. It means complete. Right? And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The transaction was complete. The penalty for sins had just been paid in full. It's why Hebrews says there are no more sacrifices needed. And so when God looks at you now, he does not see your sin. He sees the perfection of Jesus. I mean, you die because you're a sinner. You do not absorb the eternal death that, that is deserving of that. You pass immediately from death to life because the cost of sin, you don't have to pay. The punishment for sin is not coming for you anymore. The eternal consequence of sin, you don't have to experience because of mercy. And thank God for his mercy. We will not get what we deserve. And by the way, isn't that enough? If that's all salvation was, just mercy, would that not be enough? But it's not even close. Because grace is getting what you don't deserve. So get this, in salvation, God spares from you God spares for me what I do deserve, all the awful things I do deserve, and then he gives me a whole bunch of awesome stuff I don't deserve. That's a pretty good deal, right? And so I want you to see some of the things that he lists here in Ephesians 2, because I, I think some of you have been in church most of your life and don't understand a couple of these. And the first we find in verse 5. Verse 5 says that God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. The first aspect of God's grace to us is that he has made us alive. And by the way, this, this is really key, okay? Because um, often we approach this, this topic much like Nicodemus did. When Jesus told Nicodemus, no, you need to be born again, he's like, what are you talking about? I was born a long time ago, I've been alive ever since. And see, Jesus and God are often working in spiritual realms and we're thinking the physical ones. You cannot experience eternal life in heaven while in a state of spiritual death. And so for you to ever even have a relationship with God, for you to ever have heaven as a possibility, here's what God has done for you. You've literally been resurrected. You've literally been brought back from the dead. Which makes chapter 1 a little more clear, doesn't it? Look back at chapter 1 and verse 19 where Paul writes, His incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul's saying there, the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead has already been put into your life. And the reason why is because you were dead and he's resurrected you. Now, I, I was at a concert recently and I heard um, the artist, the musician was, was sharing a story. You, you call it one of those but God stories, right? And he began to tell this, this really moving, meaningful story of his, his little brother who a couple years prior to this concert was diagnosed with stage four cancer. He had cancer in multiple organs all over his body. And the doctors pretty much said, there's, there's nothing that we can do for you. And you know what the next two words were? But God. But God intervened in this man's life. He brought a miraculous healing. And, 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 he's, and the guy said, my brother is alive and well to this very day. And you know what the place did? It erupted in cheers, right? Because that's an amazing story. And I was there with him. I was clapping. But you know what else I was feeling? I was feeling this little tinge in my soul. And here's the reason why. Because there had been people in my life who I loved who faced the exact same diagnosis. And I had prayed and prayed and prayed. I had hoped, I had believed. And what happened is it went just as the doctor said it would go. And it's more than possible, right, for us to live life 
on this fallen earth and just be at a concert and hear a story like that. And you know what? You know what the first thing you think is? Well, wait a minute. Where was my miracle? What, what about my situation? Well, I mean, praise God for what he did there. I'm glad. But what, but what about here? And you know what the truth is? And if you're following Jesus, at, at some point we just have to come to this, this resolution. The truth is this. I'm a walking miracle. The fact that I even have a relationship with the God who created me, the fact that I can communicate with him in prayer, the fact that I can engage in this word and get to know him more, the fact that his spirit lives in me and guides me, the fact that I have any capacity for him in my life at all is miraculous. Because the truth is that I was dead, I was buried, I was condemned, I had no hope, and I had no way of getting to him on my own. And in his mercy, he paid my debt, and in his grace, he resurrected me to new life. Y'all remember when Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the sea? And the fish comes up and swallows him and then vomits him up on shore? Guess what? That's not our story. I've heard people try to make that our story. That's not our story, right? Because God did not save us from the grave and then set us in the cemetery. Look at verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Are you kidding me? The second aspect of grace is that God sets us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. Do you all get that? We've not just been resurrected. We've been raised and exalted. And in God's eyes, and this, this should strike you as completely absurd because it is. In God's eyes, you have now been given equal status with Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says that we are co-heirs with him. So everything that Jesus gets in the end, spoiler alert, it's all of it, okay? Everything that Jesus gets in the end, we get too. Philippians chapter 3 says that your home, you are now a citizen of heaven. Heaven is your home. It's your dwelling place. It's where you belong and where you'll be forever. What, what this means is that to understand our journey in Jesus, all we have to do is look at Christ's journey in his physical body. Because what, what Jesus went through in his physical body is what he's purchased for us. And so when Jesus Christ came and he took on our form, he took on human flesh, he died on the cross and was buried. Then that physical body was resurrected from the grave. And then 40 days later, what happened? That body then ascended into heaven. Right? Death, resurrection, and ascension. That's our path here in Jesus. We were dead in our sins, and when we believe in Jesus Christ, he resurrects us and makes us alive in him. And then we're just told that we've been raised up. We've been ascended and seated with him in heaven. Do you have any idea how, no, how you don't deserve that at all? That's why it's grace. Look at verse, look at verse 8. It's the easiest, it's the most obvious summation to all this. For it is by grace that you've been saved. Through faith, this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that anyone could boast. Paul unwraps all this for a chapter and a half, and he just lands it with this. It's by grace that you've been saved. Church, you don't deserve salvation. It's not from yourselves, right? You, there's nothing that you could have ever done to earn this. It's the, gift from, it's the gift of God. It's all from him. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. In fact, he says it's not by works. It's a good thing you could have never done enough works, right? You weren't capable of it. And then the, the, the ending thrust is that none of us can boast. I loved what one of our elders, Mark Schold, said at communion last week. He gave you this picture. He said that every seat at Christ's table is the same height. Because in light of God's grace, it is 
clear our standing that all of us are undeserving sinners. All of us have rightly earned wrath and hell, and he has showered us with life and love and mercy and grace. And so there is no posturing. Right? There, there is no position or acting as if we are superior or better than anyone else. There's no trusting in ourselves and our ability left. The only fitting thing to boast in is to boast in Jesus and his cross. God's motivation for our salvation was love, his purpose, his means was grace and mercy, and his purpose we find in verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that God did all this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I think of everything the Bible teaches about salvation, this is the most missed one. God's purpose for your salvation and my salvation was his glory. I've heard uh, pastors say that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was thinking about you. He was picturing you. He was loving you. It's not that I even have a theological issue with that as much as this. The purpose for your salvation wasn't you. Now, it was for your benefit, praise God. Right? The purpose for your salvation wasn't even to save you from hell. That's certainly awesome we can all agree on, right? The purpose for your salvation was that the church for all of eternity would bring glory to God. That those of us who've experienced it would share and sing and proclaim and show his grace to all in our influence. Remember what we showed you in chapter 1 as he was breaking down salvation? Look at chapter 1, verse 6. That God did this to the praise of his glorious grace. Chapter 1, verse 12. In order that, me, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Chapter 1, verse 14. Who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To what? To the praise of his glory. The purpose of your salvation is to the praise of the glory of God. And to help you, that's, that's kind of a big theological idea. So I want to show you this morning what this looks like. And the best example we see uh, from someone who got it in the Bible we can find in the book of 1 Timothy. So we're going to put this on the screens for you. This is the same Paul who wrote the, book, the letter to Ephesus. And this is what he writes to his young protege Timothy. He says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you follow the train of thought there? Paul is recounting his story to a young man who knew it very well, but he can't help but tell it. And he's reminding Timothy of a few aspects of his salvation. Number one, that he was a sinner. He called himself the worst of all sinners. He was a sinner deserving of wrath and that God poured out his grace on him. And he lists for Timothy two reasons that God did this. And in the top two reasons, what you don't see is he wanted to save me from hell. Did you catch the two reasons? Number one, that I would bring him glory. And number two, that my story would be an example to others. Timothy, they would see from my life that if God did that for me, he can surely do it for you. And then he just breaks out in praise and worship. So let me ask you, if you're in Jesus this morning, is that the story that you're telling with your life? Is that what all your pursuits are about? Or is it that when people get to know you, 
they might begin to believe that God saved you because you were so awesome? Or do they see nothing different in you than they'd see from somebody who isn't, who doesn't have Jesus? Or is it that too often you live as if you're still in the grave when you've been resurrected? Or, or are you what Paul was? Are you an actual trophy of God's grace? That even to begin to tell your story would be impossible without telling others of him. You see, God loved us with an incomparable love that led to him pouring out his grace on us. And the purpose of all of it was that we would bring him glory. So what is it, church, that we we need to do and respond to such a display of mercy and grace and love from God? There's three things that I want us to land on today. And and number one is the simplest, but it's the most important when it comes to your eternal standing. You have to place your faith in Jesus. I want you to look at verse 8 again. Verse 8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Paul breaks down, salvation is by grace, but it's through something, it's through faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if faith is, is the unlocking of God's grace for our salvation, with faith is the only thing that can please God, it's a pretty important thing. Right, so God made the move towards you. He did all the work. He gets all the credit, but he will not jam this down your throat. You must respond in faith. This is why Romans 10 says that any who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And it's important. If, if this is how big it is. It's important that we define it. And so how I defined it for you this morning would be this. Faith is just recognizing that what God says is true. We don't have to, we don't have to make it any more complicated than that. So if God says that I'm a sinner... And God says that I'm dead in my sins and deserving of hell, then that's true because God said it. And if God also says that he loves me and he pursued me and he died for me, then that's true because he said it. And if God also says that there's nothing that I can do in and of myself, then my only hope is to believe in Jesus and he will save me and he will forgive me of my sins and he'll give me eternal life, then that's true because God said it. And so what I'll do is ask Jesus to do just that. And I'll surrender my life to him because that's what faith is. It's believing what God says about us. It's recognizing that you, yes, you are a sinner bound for hell and trusting Jesus Christ to save you and change that reality. We are saved by grace, but faith is the key to unlocking the grace of God in our lives. So without placing your faith in Jesus, all that God has done for you is a waste. Without placing your faith in Jesus, you will remain dead in your sins and bound for hell, having wasted the greatest gift you've ever been given. And so I'm just going to stop right now and say, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm calling on you to do so today. I'm not asking you to wait till I'm done talking. I want you to do it right now. I want you to pray right now, Jesus, take over my life and forgive my sins because I'm not, I don't want to be my God anymore. I need you to save me. And if you've done that, there's a couple of things we have for you. Is first, first that we are called to, the purpose of our salvation is this, that we would live for the glory of God. Have you ever wondered, why me, right? Why, why did God do all this for me? Why, why would God create me and shape me and form me and pursue me and die for me and then draw me in and convict me of sin and save me and redeem me and resurrect me? You don't have to wonder anymore. The reason why he did it is clear, so that you would bring him glory. And too often, man, far too often, what we want to do is take the good from God. Yes, Lord, I'll take forgiveness, absolutely. Give me that eternal life, give me that salvation, and then turn around and still want to live for ourselves. 
I'll take all that, Lord, but I'm still going to make my life about pursuits that are ultimately vain and selfish. What I'm going to spend my passion and energy on is my career to make more money, to get more possessions, to, to build a huge retirement. I'm going to be more focused on my hobbies than I am on serving God. I'm going to know every single stat of every baseball player. I can tell you every detail about my fantasy football team, but I'm ignorant of God's word. I'm going, to try, I'm going to try to make my kid the greatest athlete that's ever existed, and I'm not going to train them at all to be an ambassador for Jesus. That whatever it takes, right, whatever, that I, I'm stuck in this cycle of habitual, uh, repetitive sin, unwilling to do whatever it would take to get rid of that in my life, that I'm going to make it my goal in 2019 to live a life not offending anyone. And so I'm never going to share my faith or take a gracious stand. And in doing so, when we do this, what we accept is God's motivation for our salvation. We accept his means of our salvation, but we reject his purpose. Say, no thanks, we don't need that. And what we can do is live for his glory. We can actually work for his glory by working excellently. By working with character, by working hard, by by having honor in our work and, and building relationships with our coworkers who don't know him. You can go to school for his glory. You know, God loves intelligence. He gave you a mind. He wants it to grow, right? So, so learn about his creation. Learn, do your work, right? And then build relationships with those in your school who don't know him. Be set apart in the hallways. You can use your marriage for his glory. You can, you can show your spouse the patience and grace that he has shown you because that's what required to live with someone else. And you can be open with the fact that other people, that our marriage isn't perfect, but we're relying on the grace of Jesus. That brings him glory. You can parent for his glory to make it the number one overarching goal of your life as parents is that you will point your kids to Jesus in the hopes they will become awesome warriors for his kingdom and relying on his grace when you fail because guess what parents, you're going to fail today and you're going to fail tomorrow. You can play sports, you can perform, you can sing, whatever spotlight you're given, you can do that for his glory by being set apart in your attitude and being set apart in your humility and use the platforms he gives you to, to build the fame of his name and not yours. We can worship him every day and all that we can do. We can worship him corporately when we gather together. I've, I've said this before. The music that we do here is not filler. Okay? It's not because I couldn't fill an hour. I could, right? The music we do has a purpose because when we punt on the chances that we have to worship God together, when we don't punt on that but we engage, we speak life into the dead parts of our soul. When we join together in worship, we are, we are waging war against the influence of our enemy and the world and our flesh on our lives. When we worship, we fulfill our purpose as saved, resurrected, new creations in Jesus who are designed to bring him glory. We need to make it the aim of our lives to live for his glory, and in doing so, we can become trophies of his grace. You get the purpose of trophies, don't you? What are trophies for? They're meant to be put on display to showcase an accomplishment. Are our lives a display for how awesome and gracious our God is? You you know what we can't do, church? We can't, or we shouldn't, we do, right? We shouldn't receive this grace, we shouldn't receive this salvation, and then use our time fretting and ranting and talking about how the world is ruining our country. And building into our lives this us versus them mentality and drawing lines and protecting our own and, and pine for the good old days, right? What we need to be doing is to be heartbroken at people's state apart from Jesus Christ. We need to shudder and mourn the thought of a single soul in hell. And we need to pour our lives out, sharing the hope in Jesus with all that we can. 
It starts by, God's not asking you to change the world. You get that, right? What he's asking you to do is to seek him prayerfully and identify the people that he's put in your life who don't know Jesus for the sole reason that he's, he's brought you along the way to share that with them. You need to pray and ask him to identify who those people are and then begin a process of praying for them. Just simply asking God to go to war for their soul. And asking him for, for opportunities for you to have to share the grace you've found. And you know what's going to happen? As you pray, he's going to go to work on them. And before you know it, you're going to have a chance to share. And they're going to bring it up. Because it doesn't take a bullhorn. It doesn't take you being pushy or yelling. It will be a normal conversation, one they helped initiate because God is real and he's at work. And his grace and his love will be drawing them in. Now let me ask you, why isn't that our number one goal every day? I mean, do, do we believe this grace we've been shown? Do we believe what we just read? Do, do we understand the state of people apart from him? Do, do, we, do we count this as truth? And if we do, why is it not causing us to, to be more active in taking this hope out there? Man, if you... If you are here this morning and you have not let believed in Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you again, I'm calling on you to do so today. You have no hope outside of him. And with him, you'll have a hope that nothing can take away. But if you're in Jesus, however it is this morning that you're living for your own glory, it's time for repentance and purging. It's time for you to reorient your schedule, to reorient your expenses and budget, to reorient the goals of your life and the passions of your life and the pursuits of your life. You've been resurrected. Live like it. And bring glory to the one who's done it for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the tremendous gospel of Jesus. That though I was dead, and my sins and transgressions, though I was deserving of your wrath, you loved me and pursued me and showed me a grace that is beyond anything I can imagine. And so, Lord, I pray for those who walked in this room this morning as spiritually dead people, who, who maybe are here because they're trying to put another notch in the good belt. They're trying, they're trying to earn their way to this. God, may they see the reality that apart from a full surrender and trust in Jesus, there is no hope. I pray that where they're sitting right now, they would just pray to you, yes, Lord, I believe and I surrender. And God, that you would begin them on a journey of grace that will extend for all eternity because we know that you will. And then, Lord, for the rest of us, for your church, God, I pray that we would not be a church that's indifferent to the state of people outside of Jesus. That we would not shrug at it. God, we'd be heartbroken by it. God, I pray we be a church that understands why it is you saved us. You saved us for the sole purpose of bringing you glory. And so the ways that we're not doing that, God, I pray that you would put your finger heavily on our lives this morning. You'd point those out with, with, with tremendous conviction. And that, God, we would respond in the repentance and humility you require and make the necessary changes that, that our life will be about bringing Jesus glory. We ask that you will do this in our midst for that very reason, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we sing our last song, we have a, 
just an opportunity for you to spend some time with the Lord, just kind of reflecting with him, engaging with him and some things he might have put his finger on in your life today. And so this is your time. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, this is a perfect time for you to surrender to him in prayer right now. And if you have and you, you need some things, some guidance for your prayers, just some stuff on the screen you can follow. But this is just a time for you to spend with the Lord and let him speak to you.